Hello, Creekside. It is good to be with you. I'm going to steal one of these stands if I can. Thank you. Uh, it is good to uh, be with you. It is also sad because this is the end for me. Three weeks and no more, but it has been good. It has been fun. It's been enjoyable. I feel more a part of the family, more at home. So thank you for, for having me and welcoming me. I'm um, really looking forward to seeing what God continues to do through you. I said last week we're praying for you all the time. We're going to continue to pray for you, and I encourage you to pray for you. Continue to pray. Continue to pray that God would continue to use you and move through you. Um, we've been looking at this series called Refresh, and the idea of the big idea has just been how do we live lives that we enjoy? And we started in, in week one asking a series of questions basically each week. In week one, we asked the question of where am I? And the idea was to ask this question as to where are we, not just emotionally, physically, mentally, but where are we spiritually? Because if we are made by God and for God as humans and creatures, then our joy intrinsically must be connected to the Creator God. And so we asked the first question of where are we and just analyzing and trying to evaluate where we are, whether we are not Christians have never been Christians, whether we've been Christians for 20, 30 years. We still need to continue to ask that question. Uh, the second question was, who am I? And we we're looking at the idea of identity. And again, coming back to the idea that if we've, if we've been made by God and for God, our sense of who we are needs to be grounded and anchored in that God. And if it's not, we, we put our identity, we put our satisfaction and our joy in things that are good but not necessarily God. And those things that are good are temporal. They're, they're here, they're gone, they're up, they're down, they're left, they're right. But God is consistent. God does not change. God's affections for us does not change. The way he views us does not change. And so it's important for us as, again, creatures, people who've been made by God and for God to see ourselves in light of who he says that we are because that never changes. Today the question is, what energizes me? And so this is more of a practical question. So I want to get pretty practical today. And we want to ask the question as to how do we live lives from a place of fullness rather than emptiness? A few years ago, I bought my, uh, my son a remote control car. And this was a, a good remote control car. It was cheap. He didn't know that part, but it was good. And this remote control car could go along, along the ground Mind-blowing, I know, but it could go up walls and on ceilings. Yeah, it was awesome. It was 20 bucks, Audi. <laughs> Love Audi. <laughs> he didn't know it was 20 bucks. Doesn't matter. Anyway, so he was like, this is awesome. One day we had our family and some friends over, and so he wanted to show off the car. And so he's like, watch this, watch this, and the car's going along the ground, and everyone's like, yeah, it's awesome. And then the next thing, he's like up, up the wall, and they're like, that's pretty awesome. Next thing, he's on the ceiling. That's really awesome. And to really show it off, what he decided to do was to put it on the ceiling just above a ceiling fan that's going. And you should have seen his face. He was like, I was like, dude, it's 20 bucks. <laughs> anyway, the car stopped for a moment and the face of my son changed significantly to like, and then we're looking at him, he's looking up there, and then you know what happens, right? Drop. 
Ba-bing, ba-bing. Everyone ducks and hides. Good car. Cheap car, but good car. Able to do good things. Battery was flat. Was now no longer able to do those good things. It broke. It shattered. He'd forgotten to recharge the battery of the car. <laughs> I didn't buy him another one. That was his own fault. This is often how we feel, though. We, we live lives that we are running hard. Our minds are frazzled. Our hearts are pounding. Our bodies are breaking. Our relationships are strained. Our sleep is declining. Our quality of work is suffering. And often our joy is fleeting. And we live in a culture of go, 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 go. And we lose our joy because we don't know how to recharge our batteries. And so the question that we're looking at today really is a question of stewardship, that God has given you life. It's a gift. It's a great gift. It's a joyful gift. And we need to steward in ways that allow us to be the most effective for His kingdom, His glory, and our joy. And if we want to get into the rhythms of our culture and just follow the patterns of our culture, we won't do that. We will run on empty. And we'll start to live lives from a place of emptiness rather than fullness. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you think that you are a better parent when you are exhausted or when you are energized? I'm a lot more patient with my children when I am energized rather than when I am exhausted. Are you a better parent when you are empty or when you are full? Are you a better friend? Are you a better spouse? Are you a better employee? Are you a better employer when you are exhausted or when you are energized? So, I think we know the answer to that question is when we're energized. So we're going to look at four things today about how do we live a life from fullness rather than emptiness. So the first thing is going to come up on the screen. The first principle I want to give you is just to identify healthy priorities. One of the things that really affects our joy is when we invert priorities and priorities get mixed up. And when you have a lot on your plate, which we do, things start to get switched around and it starts to add pressure and it starts to add this sense of just decreased energy. We carry big loads and we don't know what to do or how to handle them all. And one of the best ways, one of the most simple ways is just to start to order your priorities. But even in that, we have to ask the question of when we write, say you write down all of your priorities and everything you do and you order them in most important, you still need to be able to live and apply the priorities that are lower. And so another question is not just what is most important, but also how do I, how do I invest in lower priorities in such a way that it still honors the higher priority? So for example, for me, um, if I was to write my list, I would have my wife well above my work. So I have to ask the question, how do I work? Because that's an important priority, something that I need to do, something that I do do, something that God's called me to do. But how do I work in such a way that it still honors the fact that my wife is my highest priority? And does it reflect? Does the way I work show that? Am I pursuing my relationship with my boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, friend uh, my fiance, my spouse, in such a way that it's clear that I also value God? above that priority. So it's not just a matter of ordering the priorities, it's also asking how do we live the lower ones in light of 
the higher ones. The Bible is clear that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, I don't know how you feel as parents. I don't know how you feel as spouses. I don't know how you feel as students and workers. But I know that I get really, really busy and all of a sudden I have forgotten God. It's very easy to do. You're like, you're a pastor. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And I still forget God. I can go a whole day of talking to people about God thinking about things about God and not actually talk to God. Don't tell my church that. I'm only telling you that. This is our secret. What happens and gets said in Creekside stays at Creekside. Another question that I like to tell our people is there's a distinction between what you are responsible for and what you are responsible to. And it's an important distinction that as, an, as you, you know, learn to adult, that you need to make distinctions of. For example, I have never been responsible for my parents. They were my parents, still are my parents, and I don't have a responsibility for them, but I do have a responsibility to them as my parents. Flip that, they have been responsible for me. And then I've grown up, I've gone and got married, I've had children, I have a house. And so even their responsibility with me has changed from being someone that I'm responsible for to now someone that are actually responsible to. My parents no longer have the same responsibility. There has been a shift and a change. Parents, what about this one? I am responsible to my children's salvation, but not for it. I'm responsible to it in the fact that I'm supposed to create an environment in the home where God is talked about, where they are learning, not just at church or in Lighthouse, but in the home, that God is good and God is kind, that God loves them, that God forgives, that God restores, that God redeems, that God pursues. I'm responsible to create an environment where I try to model what it looks like to actually be one of the followers of Jesus that they too are being called to by me to become. But I'm not responsible for their salvation. I can't make them believe in Jesus. I can't control that part. That is God's responsibility, not mine. So in our church, we have had uh, parents who have grown up and then their kids have grown up and they have felt that weight of responsibility of where their kids are at the age of 30 and not walking with God. And they carry that weight as if they are responsible for it. And it's actually a weight that they're not supposed to carry anymore. They're supposed to allow God to carry that and they are to be responsible to their children to keep teaching them about Jesus and loving them. Does that make sense? There are ways in which we need to learn what is ours to carry and what is God's. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I guarantee you that is most of us in the room today. Come to me, he says. For I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can I encourage you to consider what are the weights, the responsibilities that God is supposed to carry in your life? And how you allow him to carry those and you carry what is rightly given to you and I think we struggle with this it's often hard like well how do I give this to God what is his what is mine and again can I just say to you prayer is one of the great ways that this transaction happens that he says come to me 
cast your cares, your burdens upon me, pray, talk to God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you can still pray to God. You can still say, hey, God, I don't even know if I believe you, but I'm coming to you. And God says he will listen and he will help. So another thing I was taught as, as a young guy, this will come up on the screen. I don't know if you were taught this. Um, I was taught this in children's church, I think, that joy is Jesus, others, you. So Jesus first, others second, you last. Yeah? Sound good? Everyone's like, I hate this one. I know. <laughs> I know. This is often how the Bible teaches us that we are to love God first and we're to love our neighbor. This, there is a good sense in this is healthy and right, but there is also sometimes, I think, uh, uh, a negativity and a way of seeing this that doesn't allow us to sometimes actually change it, where we go, Jesus, me, others. Again, come back to being a parent. Are you a better parent when you've actually done some things or involved yourself in some things or relinquished some things that actually benefit you and now you're energized and now you can love your kids well? So when, I, when I'm talking about possibly at, in certain times, I'm not saying live your life this way the whole time. There are times where you're like, listen, for me to love my kids well, I actually need to put my marriage first. I need to keep that there and central because when me and, me and my wife are going well, it trickles down to the kids. But our culture says, no, invert that. Change that. Make sure you put your kids first and your marriage last. And here's what happens. The biggest demographic in Australia that are getting divorced are those that have got kids that have grown up and are now moving out of homes. And so we've got a bunch of empty nesters who no longer know each other. Who are you? I'm husband. Who are you? I'm wife. We've been married for 20 years. We don't know each other anymore. Because the kids basically took over the whole home. So sometimes you actually need to go, okay, if I'm going to love my kids well, which God calls me to do, if I'm going to love my neighbors well, which God calls me to do, if I'm supposed to love people in my church the way God calls me to, how do I steward even the things that he's placed in my life so that it energizes me so that I can actually do that well? Because often we just give everybody else our leftovers and we're trying to do the Jesus, others, you. Can I give you permission? Not out of selfishness but from a place that wants to serve, sometimes you need to think even about you. I have a friend in our church. Her name is Dusty. Every time I see her, she's like just running. She runs everywhere. I'll be in a cafe. She runs into the cafe. She gets the coffee and she runs out of the cafe. You know, she's constantly running. And I'm always like, why do you run so many millions of kilometers and she's like, because when I do, I'm a better wife. When I do, I'm a better mum. When I do, I want to serve. When I do, and it's this one thing that just gets me out, it gets me away. And hubby's like, yep, you need to do that because when you do that, it's actually better for you and it's better for us. What are some of the things that you need to do that energize you so that then you can obey God in loving your neighbor, loving your spouse, loving your children, loving those around you. Number two, you need to identify unnecessary drainers. Now, I use that word unnecessary mostly for the young people in the room, okay? Because uh, some of you uh, young people are wanting, you're going to want to in your life to avoid responsibility. Now, here's the thing. Everybody in this room that works is drained by their work. So, young person, that doesn't mean we don't work, 
Okay? We have to work. Work is a good thing. So I particularly want to put in unnecessary there because we have to work, we have to marriage, we have to parent, we have to friend, we have to church, and these things do drain us. Doesn't mean we just relinquish all responsibility. Responsibility is not something that we are to avoid in life or avoid in life. In fact, growing up and taking responsibility, young person, actually can energize you. By doing that task or even doing that simple job at home, it can give you a sense of like, I did that. I can do this. Um, I've taught all of my children bar one how to ride bikes and the first ride is not, it's not good. It doesn't go well. They're scared. They don't want to do it. You're kind of forcing them. Do I force them? Is this child abuse? I'm not sure. I'm confused, but I think I need to push you through it. I don't know. And then by the end, when they're riding, they're like, look at me, I'm riding. They feel great. It's a sense of sometimes pushing through is good. And so we need to do certain things. Some of you will know about a man named Jordan Peterson. There's this phenomenon that's going on around the Western world at the moment where this guy has basically risen up to becoming the most downloaded, listened-to voice in the Western world. And his message is this, take responsibility. That's it. And the world's like, that's awesome. Yes. And the reason is because people are like, okay, I am going to take some responsibility for my life. And then it actually makes us feel good because God has made us to do some things. In the beginning, he made us to work, to toil the ground and to accomplish things. It's a good thing to have responsibility. But what we are saying is that there are some things that are unnecessary for us to carry. Again, if I go back to my son, uh, I love my boy. He's a good boy. Um, He doesn't like work. (laughs) And he's getting taught that you have to work. You have to participate. So in our house, he's responsible for bins every day. They happen some days. Um, He's responsible for cleaning the mirror and the bathroom once a week. And he also helps me mow the lawn. These are things he's getting responsibilities. And we have a rule that when you start a job, you... Every parent knows it. All the young people are like, I don't know this rule. (laughs) Young person, you've been told this rule a thousand times. Don't tell me you don't know the rule. You know the rule. So there is a sense of, I want to put responsibility onto my son so he can learn how to take on responsibility. But I also don't want to put wrong things onto him. So I travel a bit. I leave the state sometimes. I leave the country. Next week, I'm in Sydney. What I don't do with my boy is when I leave, say to him, hey, buddy, you're now the man of the house. Because he's not. That's not his to carry. That is mine. And I'm to carry that and not put that unnecessary thing on his life and say, hey, you're now in charge. Now, he kind of would like it if I'd said that. When I say you're the man in the house, it's not so much the same. So there are some things in your life, not just young people, there are some things in your life, adults, that you need to look at your life and go, is this necessary or unnecessary? Is this actually helping our life? And now for, for families... Something we've made a decision to do in our, in our family is to say our kids aren't going to be in every activity. So we have four children. The way family goes is no, not one of those children want to play the same instrument and do the same lessons. So one wants to do violin, one wants to do piano, one wants to do drum kit. The other one, well, she doesn't get to do nothing. She's three. It's like, 
they want to do, and no one wants to play the same sport. So one wants to do dancing, one wants to do gymnastic, one wants to do, and it's just like, listen, can we all just do the same thing? So it's really easy for mum and dad. And what I have found with families that we kind of do life with, some Christians, some not, is they are running around endlessly, taking one kid to this, one kid to that, one kid to this. They're paying for every single instrument. You can do two instruments. And the parents will literally say to me, we are exhausted. We are stressed because we have no money. And you're like, you're spending $200 a week just on children's activities. It is okay for your children to not be in everything, do everything. It's okay. We feel this pressure in our culture that our kids will miss out. And so as a family, we've just said to our kids, you get to do this and that's all you get to do. And they stamp their feet and they cry. And we say, you know what? We we know you're disappointed. We wish we could give you more, but we can't. And this we know is better because it will take the pressure off us financially, time-wise, and we will actually be better parents for you. But if we put you through all this, we pay for all this, we are not going to be happy. And when mum and dad aren't happy, children not happy. <laughs> Another thing we've decided this, this year, my wife and I, is to reduce our social media. Sounds simple. <laughs> Try it. I got, a, I got a text one day from my wife at 9am going, well, there's my five minutes. <laughs> Done gets logged out of Facebook, gets logged out of Instagram, can't touch them for the rest of the day. 9 a.m. 9 a.m. What are we doing at 9 a.m.? Why are we on social media at 9 a.m.? But that's just how life is happening in the West, and we are just getting consumed and consumed and consumed, and we're constantly on this thing, constantly on this thing, and it doesn't fill us, it drains us, it empties us. It shows us everybody else's life and what we don't have that they have. It shows us all that they're doing, and we feel like we are missing out. We feel like we're not living up, and it is actually affecting our minds. All social scientists are telling us that social media is one of the things that is leading people into depression like no other thing they've seen in human history history. Social media is not a bad thing. It is morally neutral, but it can affect us. So one of the unnecessary drainers that we have said is we're going to reduce that. We're just not going to spend our whole lives on it. We're going to limit it, control it, and have it as that. So what are the things that you need to reduce that are unnecessary in your life? What are some of those things? Number three, identify necessary fillers. As we grow, there are some things that we need to give up, but there are also some things that we need that fill us up. What are those things? I often uh, have marriage counseling at church. People come to me and, you know, marriage was going well. Now they're struggling and they're asking questions like, how do we fix this and how do we fix this? And one of the first questions I'll just ask is, what are, the, what are some of the things you used to do that you've stopped doing, that you loved to do? We used to love going to the movies. When was the last time we gone to the movies? Like two years. Why? Because we got kids. Okay. How do we stop allowing our kids to control our marriage and find some things that actually are good for us? How do we do that? How do we start to change some of these things up? What are some of the things that you used to do that you need to begin doing again? Because marriages rarely fall apart. They tend to drift apart. Because we stopped doing some things that were joyful and fun and filled us up. What are some of the activities, the experiences, the disciplines that fill you up? What are some of the things that refresh you in your body and in your soul? Is it working out? Is it running? Is it going to the movies? Is it going out for drinks 
coffee dates with the girls. What, what are these things? What, what are some of these things that as adults we stop doing? And if I can ultimately encourage us, let's not just think physically or mentally or emotionally. Let's think spiritually. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a sense that we could do all the physical things. We could do the running. We could do these things. And they kind of will fill us up. But what about the soul? What about that spiritual part for us? And I want to just give you two things that I think are super crucial to your soul, that your soul feeds on. And when your soul runs low on, it hurts your joy. Number one is gratefulness. When your soul runs low on gratefulness, you see everything from the negative. You focus on what you don't have. You focus on what you haven't done. You focus on what you can't achieve. We have a daily routine in our family where we do what we call our up, our down, and our cross. Up is, where have you seen God's grace towards you today? Across, like where have you kind of shared that grace and that love with someone else? And down is kind of, where do you want to see more of God's grace in your life today? So we do that every day at the table. If ever you come over to our, our, our dinner table, our girls, we go, can we do up, down, and across? Up, down, and across. And it's awesome when it's just us six, but when it's the 20, it takes hours. And so we go, no, Maddie, we can't. Sorry, darling. Uh, and she cries and whatever. That's okay. Um, I, I've found it so interesting doing that with children because children can find so many things to thank God for. The smallest things. They thank God for their friends. They thank, like my daughter has thanked God for like the sun, the moon, the stars, and now they're learning planets. She goes through them. <laughs> and then I go, what about Pluto? That's not a planet. I'm like, well, it was in my day. Well, it's not anymore. We know more. Kids, in one sense, have this ability to complain, but they also have this ability to be grateful for the basic things of life that as adults we seem to just overlook anymore. And my kids, as we've done this, we're doing this to teach them. They have taught me. Do you see all the good that God is doing, has done, just in your one little day? Or do you focus on all that he hasn't? Another thing that our soul yearns for and lives on is hope. When our soul runs low in hope, we feel depleted, we feel discouraged, we despair. Hope has this ability to fill us with wonder and possibilities and curiosity that the problems and pressures and pain of life don't necessarily go away because we have hope. It's what Shane and the band were sort of leading us in as through song there, where it's this idea that we can have trials, we can have problems, we can have pain, but we also have hope in them. So it doesn't steal our joy. We can keep our joy because we know that this problem, we know that this pain doesn't have defining marks on us, that we have a better future. We have a God that is with us, a God that is present, and a God that is helping us. And so whilst this is true, we don't want to deny that this isn't real. We want to say, yeah, but it is not defining. God is with me in this pain. And God is using whatever this is. Hope gives us this positive view of the future which fills up our present on the screen will come Psalm 43, 5. It's this, this incredible psalm where David says to himself, Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to himself. Why are you in turmoil within? Look what he says. Hope in God. Look to God. See God. Focus on God. 
Get your eyes on God. For I shall again praise him in my salvation and my God. You and I, we need hope. We need it. We're made for it. And can I say to you, it's only truly found in God. True hope, lasting hope is only found in God. And number four, identify healthy rhythms. As we start to find these things and identify them, how do we start to rhythm them into our lives? How do we move from engaging and engagement and activity to also resting, reflecting? This is, again, something I think our culture doesn't know how to to do well. There's this book by Paul Heitzman. It's called Leisure and Spirituality, Biblical, Historical, and Contemporary Perspectives. It's a really fascinating book. But in this book, one thing that he really tries to highlight is the difference between a first century Christian and the way they rhythm their lives compared to a 21st century Christian. Now, you and I, when we go to bed, we typically, the way we think is, oh, the day has been hard, we've done all these things, the kids this, the work that, and then we, at the end of our day, we sleep to recover. That's how we think about it. That is not how a first century Christian thought. See, if you read the Bible, a Hebrew way of thinking about a day is it's evening and morning the first day. It's evening and morning the second day. In other words, a first century Jewish person is sleeping to begin the day. So they don't go to sleep to recover. They go to sleep to rest, to enthuse them for the rest of their day. So my wife used to get up me, up me because she would pray to God and read her Bible in the morning. I would do it at night. And I'd be like, I'm just doing it the Hebrew way, baby. <laughs> you got it all wrong. You're doing it in you know, a first century Western way. Rest in a first century mind was to facilitate living from a place of fullness, not emptiness. Think about the Lord's Day, the first day. Sunday. What we're doing here now, often people in our church, they come and they're just like, I just need to get to church. And they're just stumbling over their day and their week and they get to church and they are exhausted and they're going, give me something. We're supposed to do it the other way. We come to church, we're full, and now we go to Monday. We're like, we are full, we are filled, we have got everything we need because we've been reminded again of Jesus, the work of the cross, the Spirit, the Word of God, the Bible, we have all of these things. So the way that they thought about rest, the way that they thought about leisure, the way that they thought about exhaustion was so different from us. We sleep because we're tired. They slept to be refreshed to go. I love this verse in Psalm 46.10. It says, Be still and know that I am God. When the Greek translated that, it was, it was written in Hebrew initially. When the first Greek Bible was written, the actual first word was leisure and know that I'm God. It's this idea of let go. Let God do what God does. Do you know every time you sleep, you're actually sleeping in faith. You're saying, I can't control the world. I'm switching off. And I'm letting go. Leisure. 
but that leisure, that, that resting, that letting go, is to facilitate the second part, know God. Leisure, rest, retreat, know God. Why is it important to think of this this way? Because we know that ultimate rest cannot be found in just switching off. Again, the first century, the Lord's Day, is not to come and have a day off rest and do nothing, is to come and worship. So we, we take the day off and we come and we know God. We connect with God. We reconnect with Him. And so it's a sense of, it's not quantitative, it's qualitative. It's developing this sense that every time we come to church, every time we come to retreat and, and leisure, we are leisuring to know our God, to be refreshed and experience Him. And how do we do that? We think. We ponder. We remember the promises of God. And as I, as I invite the band up, think about God. Notice in Psalm 43 when it said, Why are you cast down, O soul? Why are you in turmoil within? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. <clears throat> when we think about God, what do we think about? <clears throat> when you stop at night, when you sleep, when you come to church, what do you think about? God promises His people that He will never leave you, He will never forsake you. So I don't know what the problems are in your life. I don't know what the pain that you are feeling right now. I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. God promises to be there with you in that. That's what I do know. I don't know the experiences that you've had. I don't know the weight that you are carrying today. But here's what I do know. I know that God promises to guide us. God promises to provide for us. God promises to heal us. God promises to restore us. I don't know what's going on in your marriages. I don't know what's going on at your workplace. I don't know the stresses that you are carrying. But I do know this, that God promises that no matter what it is that you are experiencing right now, that He will use it for His glory. And the Bible says also for your joy. I don't know how. I don't know how He does that. What I can tell you is I've seen it time and time and time again with people who have come into my church that are exhausted and are weary and are lost and they're hurting and they are broken and they meet with God. And somehow God takes whatever that thing is that they're going through and He meets them there and He greets them there and He welcomes them in and He says, listen, you are not alone. Know me. Don't just be still. Don't just retreat. Don't just rest. Know me. Because in there, that's when your soul will be filled again. With hope. With joy. And you might say, well, how do I know? Well, for Christians, we look to a cross. And we go, 2,000 years ago, he promised and showed us this. So whatever it is that you're experiencing right now that is negative, hurting, painful, 
the cross would tell us not exactly what the reason is, but what the reason can't be. It can't be that God doesn't love you. Because he's already proven that. He went to a cross and died for you. So you can be reconnected, brought back into a relationship with God, sins completely forgiven, and empowered by his spirit to now go and live. And so as we finish up this morning, this is my last chance to pray with you. And so I'd love to pray with you now. And then at the end, uh, Peter and a few of the pastoral team are going to stay over here on, the, on, the, on your right-hand side, my left. And if you are hurting, if you are wounded, if you are struggling, if you feel like your life is not filled with joy, we'd love the great privilege just to pray with you. So I'm going to pray and then the band will lead us in a song. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to believe. Help us to believe that you are good, that you are kind, that you are close. God, that you are willing. God, when our lives feel empty, when our lives feel drained, when we do not feel feel filled with joy, it leads us to doubt you. It, It leads us to doubt that you care. Lord, help us to look back to that cross from 2,000 years ago as the evidence of your love and your care for our lives. And Lord, as these people in this church, these wonderful people, are going through the things that they're going through, God, would you meet them? Would you really meet them? Would they have stories to tell of what you pulled them out of and different ways in which you came through once again for them? May the stories of their great God, their good God, their caring God be on their lips. May this church be a church filled with stories of God. And Lord, we thank you that you are not far and distant, that you are close, you draw near, and you care. We thank you in your name, we pray.